This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. ABC. I'm reading from John chapter 14. I'm just reading the first three verses, so there's no need to turn to it. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in me. There are many rooms in my father's house. If there were not, I should have told you. I am going now to prepare a place for you. And after I've gone and prepared a place for you, I shall return and take you with me, so that where I am, you may be also. This morning's word is on guilt, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And those words that I just mentioned and read from the Bible might sound a bit odd in relation to this talk, but actually you'll see how they play out towards the end. And the main emphasis this morning is actually going to be on guilt. The whole of the human race feels guilty. It's built into us. We know that we are sinners. And most of the world's religions have been created to deal with that guilt and to try and obtain forgiveness. If you look at Islam, Islam teaches that on the day of judgment, your good deeds and your bad deeds will be put in a weighing scales. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, guess what? You get into heaven. In Hinduism, they teach that you will be reborn into a higher caste of person or even become a god if you're good enough in this life and all the previous lives that you've lived in because they believe in reincarnation. Buddhism is similar. It just believes that when you finally reach nirvana, which isn't a ban but a state of mind, you will actually become one with God and disappear as a person. Judaism teaches that the sacrifice of animals will atone for your sins. But Hebrews chapter 10 makes quite clear that actually all of the sacrifice of those animals didn't atone for any sins at all. They were just in preparation for the time when the Son of God would be sacrificed for your sins that provides a once and forever atonement for all of our sins. And it might seem as if if this word this morning is for non-Christians, as if it's an evangelical message, but it's not. It's for Christians. Why? Because Scripture says, 1 John 1.9 says... If we say we have no sin in us, we lie and deny the truth. Christians sin. And we've got to have a way and a means whereby we can deal with that sin. If we fail in our responsibilities towards people, we feel guilty. If you let down your children, for example, if you fail to be there for birthday parties or fail to buy them the right presents at Christmas or miss out on PTAs or concerts, you will feel bad. And justifiably so, because if you didn't have that sense of guilt, you wouldn't change your behavior. Sometimes helping other people can actually help people relieve themselves of guilty feelings. And many Christians are made to feel guilty by the demands made on them for their time or their money. For example, when you pass a beggar in the street, do you feel guilty? Do you feel guilty enough to give them some money? If so, why? Aren't we Protestants? Don't we believe in the teachings of the Reformation? Don't we believe that to give money to a person to create in them idleness is a sin and therefore we can't do it? I have never given a penny to a beggar and I never will. But I've bought more big issues and given more money to buskers than I care to remember. Why? Because the big issue seller is offering a product and the busker is actually offering a service. So that's fine, I can give them money. Although I do remember supervising a guy who used to sit in the underpass in Swansea and he had a flute and I never gave him a penny. And he saw me one day giving a quid to a person playing a violin. And he said, why do you never give me any money? And I said, because you're a 
a beggar masquerading as a busker. He says, I play the, the flute. I said, how many holes are on that flute? He said, eight. I said, how many do you play? Two. I said, da-da is not a tune. You make a tune, I'll give you a quid. He never did. He was a beggar masquerading as a busker. Sometimes we're made to feel collectively guilty. Something bad happens and somebody, normally on TV, says, oh, we're all responsible. No, we're not. We're responsible for what we do and for what we don't do. We're not responsible for things that are beyond our control. Sometimes we can feel guilt due to loss. You lose a loved one and you say to yourself, oh, if only I'd said, if only I'd done, if only I'd... That's remorse, that's regret. And maybe it's unavoidable, but you know what? The only guarantee we've got is today. That's all. So make the most of the time. If you love someone, tell them today. If you've got problems with someone, sort it out today. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Look what happened in Paris. Those people had plans and futures and pensions, and it's all been taken away suddenly, just like that. So make the use of the day and the time that we've got. We know we have sinned by the guilt we feel. However, and this is odd, No such word appears in the Bible, in either Hebrew or Greek. The word that is translated as guilt in your Bible and my Bible doesn't mean emotional guilt. What it actually means is this, punishment due for sin. And it's important to understand that biblical guilt is not an emotional state, but actually a person's status under the law deserving punishment. And oddly enough, the English language still has the meaning of that word. If you're convicted of a crime, you will be determined to be guilty. But you might not feel guilty. You might feel that you're completely innocent. But guess what? You've been found guilty. The word guilty, G-U-I-L-T-Y, in English is the same as the word guilt in English, meaning money. It's the same as the German word and the Dutch word, geld. The Anglo-Saxons had a system of fines. If you committed a crime, even up to murder, you had to pay a fine. And the fine was a monetary value, a guilt. Okay? You paid the money over and then you're allowed to go your way. We still have that meaning in the English language. But this morning we're talking about emotional guilt, the feeling of being guilty, which is something different. That occurs when a person believes they violated a moral standard or code. And many people suffer all their lives from this oppressive feeling of guilt, of having failed friends or family, or the sense of not having lived up to parents' expectations. This has been called the disease of false guilt. At the root of false guilt is the idea that what you feel must be true. If you feel guilty, then you must be guilty. Guilt can sometimes reinforce negative behavior. It's particularly true with addicts and with offenders. They do something wrong. They feel guilty. So what do they do to relieve their feelings of guilt? They do the same thing again. Particularly powerful when you have addictive characteristics in a person. Sometimes those people feel simply too worthless to make positive change. So it's important to distinguish between whether you feel guilty or you are guilty, and it can also work the other way. You might be guilty, but not feel it. There's also a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is your conscience telling you that you have done wrong, and shame is the awareness that other people know you have done wrong. Let's say you're foolish enough to to miss the Sunday meeting. And then you're unfortunate enough to bump into me at lunchtime on Monday in Wilkinson's. The guilty person, right, without any conversation taking place, the guilty person will say this. My bad, I missed yesterday. I I slept in. What was the meeting like? Who preached? What happened? Okay? 
Guilt always speaks the truth about the past. But the person who feels shame probably won't mention yesterday. But unbidden, they'll say, oh, I'll be there next Sunday. Oh, I'll be in the home group. Oh, I'll be in the prayer meeting. Shame invariably lies about the future. Guilt always tells the truth about the past. You can see this with Adam and Eve. When God confronts them, what do they do? Do they say, my bad? No, they don't. She says, the serpent told me. The bloke says, the woman told me. They're not taking responsibility. They're feeling shame, as indicated by the symbolism of them being naked. There's a TV show on at the moment, which I haven't seen, but I read a review of, called The Secret Lives of Four-Year-Olds. And there was one little bit I read about that program, where a four-year-old girl has done something wrong, and a teacher comes up to her to confront her. And she points at the little four-year-old boy and says, he told me to do it. And his reply was classic. Yeah, but she listened. <laughs> do you know what? Isn't that what the devil says? Yeah, yeah, I told her, but she listened. Isn't that what the woman can say? Yeah, I told him, but she listened. Who are you listening to this morning? Whose voice is going into your head? Do you know what? When it comes to shame, it's not a moral thing. It's a biological thing. You come home and your dog has eaten your sofa, okay? Before you start screaming and shouting at it, you know, your dog will be happy. It thinks it's done a good thing. It's only when you start screaming and shouting at it, it realizes that it's done the wrong thing. And you might say of your dog, oh, he's got a guilty look on his face. No, he hasn't. He hasn't got a conscience. But he does feel shame, which is why his tail will drop and his ears will drop. Pack animals use shame as a biological imperative to conform people to a group behavior. So you see it with wolves, you see it with dogs, you see it with chimps, you see it with people. But it's not moral. It's biological. Guilt is of God. Shame is just of our biology. Shame leads to lying. Guilt can alter behavior. Because you can only ever be guilty of something that you have done, a sin or a crime, you should never feel guilty about who you are. Okay? And this might upset a few of you, but I seriously don't care. Um, (laughs) As you know, I am a heterosexual. Okay? I did not choose that, okay? Whatever the process was, genetic, biological, it just happened. So I can't take pride in being a heterosexual. Guess what? If you're a homosexual, you didn't choose that. Whatever the process was, that turned you into a homosexual. If I was a homosexual, you'd be the first to know, and I would not be ashamed of being a homosexual. You can only be ashamed of what you do. And if you're a gay Christian, you have to live your life in accordance with the word of God. And if you do wrong things, guess what? You should feel guilt, and perhaps you should feel shame. But it's not as if there's a hierarchy here, as if heterosexuals are all righteous and homosexuals. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, hell will be filled with people, guess what, of various genders and colors and orientations and all the rest of it. And so will heaven. It's just that some people accept the teachings of Jesus Christ and live it out, and others do not. Psychologists have given a name to people who suffer from compulsive guilt. They call it Catholic guilt, I kid you not. What is it about the Catholic Church that really guilts its people out? Some of my daughter's friends are Roman Catholics from Northern Ireland. They're the loveliest people you could ever meet, and they are riddled with guilt. Some of them are atheists. They don't believe in a God. But they they feel guilty about everything. What is it about the Catholic Church that does this? They're convinced that no matter what they do, they will always fall short of some moral standard. And I think the thing with people like that is they don't understand the process of how to obtain forgiveness. And the weird thing is the Roman Catholic teaching on forgiveness is actually, is pretty spot on. They teach that forgiveness requires three acts. 
Contrition, which is sorrow for sin. Confession, disclosure of sin. And penance, which is making amends to make sure the sin doesn't happen again. And I think where the Roman Catholic Church gets it wrong is it says, first of all, it's got a monopoly on that, okay, when actually, in fact, it's a franchise, you know, everybody can do it. (laughs) Secondly, they think only a celibate priest can do it. When in actual fact, we're all priests. You don't need a priest because you are a priest, okay? So we could all undertake this process. And they also get penance wrong. They think penance is like saying lots of Hail Marys, which is kind of like beating yourself up to make yourself feel better. But penance is doing something different to make sure that you don't sin again. I think that's why Roman Catholics feel so guilty, because they, they don't get the last bit of this right. Let me give you the example of smoking, okay? It's a horrible thing. You're a Christian. You smoke. You feel guilty, You feel regret and remorse about your behavior. You experience contrition. You confess to God that this is a sin that you want to change. And then you do penance by what? You stop smoking. You get rid of your cigarettes, and you don't go places where you can buy them, okay? That process is repentance. And I think within the Protestant churches, we have completely forgotten that. We think that saying sorry is being sorry. No, it's not. It's that threefold process that we need to go through to clear ourselves of sin. And it's guilt that kicks it off. If you don't feel guilt in the first place, you won't do any of it. Jen's dad was a chain smoker. And when he got married, he married a woman who suffered from asthma. So what did he do? He stopped smoking just like that. And the next day, he went out into the yard outside their house. And his lungs actually threw up all the tar and the filth and the muck. His whole body just revolted against what he'd been doing. Why did he do it? Because he loved his wife. Do you know what? Christians who maintain addictions at the end of the day do not love Jesus Christ enough. Because if they did, they'd stop damaging the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is their body. So if you want to deal with guilt, well, you've got to find out actually who you've sinned against. If it's a man, if it's a person, then you need to confess the sin to that person, okay? If there is some kind of dispute going on between you, it's something visible, okay? You need to sort it out with that person. If they refuse to forgive you, then they've sinned. Because it actually says, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, do not be angry with each other, but forgive each other. If you feel someone has wronged you, forgive them. Forgive others because the Lord forgave you. Best example of that, I think, is marriage. You know? Things are said. Things are said in anger. Objects are thrown. (laughs) Clothes are ripped. Guns are loaded. (laughs) The day doesn't end well. But overnight comes guilt, remorse, regret, contrition. And the next day come those beautiful words, I am so sorry, Ian. And (laughs) And the great thing is, I am quick to forgive. But that isn't my nature, okay? My nature is this. You hurt me or mine, I will kill you, I will wipe out your seed from off the earth, I will burn down your homesteads and salt your land, okay? That is the highland Silurian heritage that is in myself. But I don't behave like that. I forgive very easily and I don't bear grudges. Why? Because I'm scared of God. If I do not forgive people, he will not forgive me and I've committed some terrible sins in my life. And I need to have him forgive me. So I'm pretty good with this. It's an act of will, okay? It's not an act of nature. Jesus actually said, when asked, how many times should I forgive my brother who offends me? He said seven times 70, 490 times. 
I've got to say, if I had a brother who had offended against me 490 times, I'd move church and possibly move country. But Jesus is saying there is no limit to the number of times that you should forgive. But remember, you don't have to tell people that you've forgiven them. I don't want to have you coming up to me after the service and say, Ian, that word you gave eight years ago, I've forgiven you for it. That's, that's, that's cursing with a blessing, really, isn't it? You just don't need to do it. It's only if it's a living dispute or there's a living issue between people. And also, don't go hunting down people on Facebook or Friends Reunited and knocking on the door of a 50-year-old guy who lives in Peterborough to apologize to him for the fact that you punched him in primary school. That is weird, okay? That is stalking. That is not good. If it's from the distant past, then just confess it to God. Although I do remember being in a previous church in Swansea, and before communion, the guy in charge of the church had said, if you have any dispute with anyone in this church now, if there's anyone that you feel, you know, there's an issue with, go to them now and, and ask forgiveness. And I was sitting next to a guy and I said to him, you watch this, this is going to be hysterical. And sure enough, a conga line of about 125 people formed in front of this one elder. And I just saw his face drop. And I thought, this is amazing. And then finally the presiding elder said, oh, no, no, that's enough now, and go into communion. Do you know what? Don't open the can unless you're prepared to look at the worms, okay? Just make it real. Sometimes repentance demands restitution. Luke chapter 19 verse 18 says this, Zechariah said to the Lord, or Zechariah said to the Lord, I want to do good. I will give half my money to the poor. If I have cheated anyone, I will pay them back four times more. If you've committed a crime, guess what? and you become a Christian, you need to go to the police and confess to that crime. Remember being in a previous church? We had a guy from Teen Challenge there giving his testimony. He had seemingly burgled hundreds of houses. I don't know how true that was. But after the service, I went up to him and said, what happened when you went to the police? And he said, why would I want to go to the police? I've been forgiven by God. I said, no, you haven't. You have to make restitution. You have to confess these crimes. Domestic burglary is a really serious crime. I mean, you know, if you get mugged on the street, you can avoid that street, but you can't avoid your home. People who've had their homes burgled, I mean, they live in fear. Every noise they hear at night wakes them up. They have lost their peace. And I said to him, you can go to the police now, and they will go to those houses, and they will put those people at rest, because you've got a good testimony now. The cops will say, we caught the guy, and guess what? We got him because he confessed to his sin because he became a Christian. So they would know that they wouldn't be burgled again. And he wouldn't have it. And the teachers or the people around him wouldn't have it either. And I, the last words to him I said were, you're not forgiven by God. There was a guy who, who saw the uh, Passion of the Christ when it came out. And he was convicted, felt guilty, became a Christian, went to the cops, told them that he'd murdered his girlfriend three years before. When he was up before the judge to be sentenced for murder... The judge commended him on becoming a Christian and then sentenced him to 93 years in jail. Which sounds a bit harsh when in Britain you only serve on average 11 years for murder. But you know what? Better spend 93 years in jail and an eternity in heaven than 93 years free and an eternity in hell. Jesus Christ himself said, if thine eye offends thee, pluck it out. Better to enter life without an eye than to enter hell with both eyes. Okay? You've got to think in terms of eternity. And once you've had a meeting with Christ, that genuinely actually does happen. If you are producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, 
the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control, and you still feel guilty, who is accusing you? Your parents? Your friends? Family? Church? The Greek word for accuser is devil. Is the devil accusing you? If so, why are you listening? I remember doing door-to-door with John, and we knocked on one door, trying to share the gospel. And the lady came to the door, and she said, "Um, what church are you from? I said, ABC. And she leant forward, and she said, if you knew what I know about Ivy and Watkins, you wouldn't go to ABC. Now, I was intrigued, because I couldn't believe Ivy hadn't told me all his sins, at least 11 times, and each time told with the urgency of a first telling, which I always found slightly strange. And I said, well, well, what did he do? And she said, I know. I thought, wow, this is the voice of the devil. This is the voice of Satan. This is the voice of Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, the first beast of Revelations, the primeval serpent, the dragon. And I leant forward and said, who are you? And she said, I'm his cousin. (laughs) And I was reminded of the words of Jesus, your worst enemies will come from within your own family. What does it say in John chapter 8, verse 10 to 11? Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she replied. Then neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go away and sin no more. John chapter 5, verse 22 says this. All judgment has been left to the Son, not to the Father, not to Moses, not to Muhammad, to Jesus Christ. If you have contrition, if you have confessed, if you have done penance, then Jesus has, not will, has acquitted you. He is your friend, your advocate, your brother, your Lord, your Savior, your King, your Redeemer, and your God. Why are you believing the devil and not your God? It's because you live by feelings and not by faith. So you need to change that and start thinking rationally about your religion and not emotionally. There are some Christians who live lives that are more unfaithful, more immoral, more unrighteous than non-Christians. What is that about? Seriously, we're having a good discussion with two great theologians in the coffee shop yesterday. And, you know, we were trying to get to the truth of this matter. And it is weird. I'll just give you a silly, a slightly dull idea, really, but an example. But, you know, one that was brought home to me a wee while ago. Um, at the end of this meeting, we'll go out and have a coffee. And somebody will put out biscuits, won't they? And there's probably about 60 or 70 people in the church today, including kids. There's probably only about 30 or 40 biscuits. Um, Good manners dictate that you just take one biscuit. Some people take two, three, four, five. What What is that about? That's the same behavior that happens when a single snow leaf falls on Ammonford and they run out of bread in Tesco because people rush in to grab it. Or like Black Friday when people go rushing in and and grabs that. Or you put down a bowl of food for a bunch of dogs, and they all go in there and grab it. Actually, I'm doing a disservice to dogs, aren't I? Because you can train a dog to wait. We did it with our little collie, Sam. We'd put down one bowl, the cat would come and eat its little bit of food, and the dog would sit there, wait his time. He didn't have to watch over it, he just sat there, and then he'd come in and he'd eat his food. They shared. You know you've got a moral problem when you're less Christ-like than a collie. You need to sort yourself out. Seriously. What is wrong with people? I think myself, it's a misunderstanding of Romans chapter 10 verse 9. 
where it actually says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I think people think that just, oh, I believe and I confess, therefore I'm saved. But the definition of belief isn't given in Romans. It's given in the letter of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 24. And I've left out a few of the illustrations just to speed it up. But this is what he says about faith and believing. Take the case of someone who has never done a single good deed, but claims that he has faith. Will that faith save him? This is the way to talk to people of that kind. You say you have faith and I have good deeds. I will prove to you that I have faith by showing you my good deeds. Now you prove to me that you have faith without any good deeds to show. You say you believe in God, that's good, but the demons have the same belief and they tremble with fear. Do you not realize, stupid man, that faith without good deeds is dead? You see now that it's by doing something good and not only by believing that a man is saved. It's the free gift of God. But the proof that you've got the gift is that you live a Christ-like life. It's not that living a Christ-like life guarantees you salvation or gives you salvation. If you're naked and I give you clothes, you've only stopped being naked when you put the clothes on. It's embodied in our behavior whether or not we are saved or not. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 to 20. I have told you often and I repeat it today with tears. There are many who are behaving like the enemies of Christ. They are destined to be lost. They make food into their God and are proudest of things they ought to think shameful. The things that they think are important are earthly things. But for us, our homeland is in heaven and from heaven comes the saviour that we are waiting for, the Lord Jesus. And the word that's translated there as destined in Greek doesn't mean the same as our word destined. For us, destined means inevitable. The word in Greek means to make happen. They're destined to be lost because of the way they're living. But there's no inevitability about that. If you're heading for a cliff in a car at 80 miles an hour, you're destined to go off the end. But you don't have to go off the end. You can stop. You can turn the wheel. There are things you can do. And it's the same with these people who are living unrighteous lives. You can change your behavior. There's nothing inevitable about it. The bottom line is this. We are told, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through our conscience. And it's that that allows us to keep ourselves corrected and going along the straight path. Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 to 20 says this, Hold on to your faith and maintain a good conscience, which some have ignored and then shipwrecked their faith, like Hermione's and Alexander, who I have delivered over to Satan. He says the same again in 5.15, 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. The handing over to Satan just means being kicked out of the church in the hope that there they might come to their senses. The Holy Spirit magnifies our conscience and turns it into the voice of God, telling us when we're doing wrong. Best way to illustrate that, you're coming home late at night in the car on the motorway, you're tired, you shouldn't be driving, but you are, and you begin to drift off. And as the car moves offline, guess what? It hits those ribbed lines on the edge and suddenly the wheel starts shaking. That's like ordinary conscience that all human beings have. But there are some cars that have lane departure warnings. And so the steering wheel starts shaking. That's like the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's a heightened sense of conscience. And if you don't listen to those instructions from your car, you will crash and burn. And if you don't listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life, guess what? You will go off the road and it's a narrow road. And you will crash and burn. What is the worst sin in the Bible? Sodomy? Murder? No, it's hypocrisy. 
Hypocrites live a lie. They are habitualized to sin to such an extent that they lie to cover up a sinful life. But this is the weird thing. The lie is a greater sin than the sin is designed to cover. When I used to supervise people, sometimes they get done for driving with no insurance. Not a major crime. Normally dealt with a fine or community sentence. But guess what? When the court sheet came through, they'd been referred to Crown. And they would say, well, what's going to happen? I said, you're going to go down. What? Going to go to prison just for no insurance? I said, now there's another offence here. Did you give the police a false name and address? Yeah. Well, that's called perverting the course of justice. Mandatory custodial sentence. The lie is a worse crime than the crime that they committed. The criminal justice system would cease to work if they tolerated lies. That's why they're so harsh on it. Guess what? The kingdom of God ceases to work if people live a lie. That's why at the beginning of the new covenant, in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, God kills two Christians who lie. Ananias and Sapphira sold a a field they didn't have to sell, gave the money to the elders they didn't have to give, but they kept back a little bit and just said, this is all the money we've got. Not a major lie, but the elders say this, you haven't lied to us, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And two of them dropped dead. That's a shot across our bows by God to make sure that we don't live a lie and just deal with the truth. If you lie, guess what? The devil's your father. You really, really do not want him as a dad. His presents are seriously rubbish. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says this. They speak lies in hypocrisy as if having had their conscience seared with a red-hot iron. When Christians live a lie, in the end, their conscience dies. And I know what it's like to be seared by something hot. When I was 10 years of age, a bit of wood from a bonfire went down my back. The bottom of my back is seared. I can't feel anything there because the nerve endings have been burned off. In the end, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit cannot communicate with you because your conscience has been seared. You really do not want that. And in the end, you know what? The truth will out. You come to resemble either your sin or your saviour. You know, if, if methamphetamine is your sin, you know what you'll look like. It's horrific. Smoking is your sin, guess what? You'll end up looking and smelling like an ashtray. If food is your sin, guess what? You'll become obese and suffer all of the, of the health problems associated with that just want to end with this. Salvation is a process of purification, okay? It's not a one-off thing. It's a process whereby an unholy, unclean people get transformed into the likeness of Christ in this life so that God, who is holy, can be reunited with his children. Adam and Eve felt no guilt in the garden, and as a result, they were cast out of Eden. We feel guilt so that we might know when we need to change when we need to forgive when we need to behave differently so that he can come and take us home that's why i need my guilt i need the voice of the holy spirit to tell me ian you shouldn't have done that you shouldn't have gone there you shouldn't have looked at that you shouldn't have said that and because there are sins of omission as well as commission i need the holy spirit to tell me ian you should have gone to the sunday meeting you should have gone to the prayer meeting you should have done this or done that. When that text comes around asking for help in the church, you should have been there. I need that because if I don't have that, I will crash and burn. And I'm on a journey, on a narrow road and at the end of that journey, I will meet my Lord. Have you ever seen those programs on the Discovery Channel or or National Geographic? Guys are dropped in the wilderness and they have to get to a certain rendezvous point at a certain time to be picked up. 
That's our life. There is a rendezvous point. For those poor people in France, the other day, the rendezvous point came in a concert or a cafe or in a stadium. And we don't know when we will have that rendezvous point. But you have to be and I have to be ready for that moment. And guilt is the little voice that tells us how to be ready for that. If you've never been to boarding school, you will know this. But kids in boarding school, what do they do all the time? They look out the window down the drive, hoping to see their dad coming in the car. And on a Friday evening or Saturday morning, they get ready. They put their uniforms on, they get their bag packed. Because if they're not ready, they're not going to be picked up. We have to be ready for that moment that we are picked up. Jesus says this, repeating the verse I read at the beginning, John chapter 14. I will return to take you with me, so that where I am, you may be also. It was Armistice Day on Wednesday, wasn't it? Do you know the great thing about war is when it ends and the boys come home and the kids get to see their dads again? We are in a war. We are soldiers in a war. We sing it, but maybe we don't live it. But we are. But at some point the war will end and dad will come and take us home. And I don't know what that's going to be like, but I think it might be a wee bit like this video we're going to see now. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 59